and I look behind me, and there's two pig hoofs sticking right next to my head, basically touching my ear from the back seat. And it's a dead pig. It's a freshly slaughtered um, dead pig that I'm guessing they're transporting to Lijiang. Um, they do this kind of thing all the time in China. This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. Back for another episode. This is Tim Kissner today, one of my favorite storytellers. Tim has been to, I'm pretty sure, everywhere on Earth. You've been Europe, Asia, Oceania. Have you been to Africa? No, I have not yet. No. South America? No, never anywhere. You haven't never been to South anywhere America? south of Texas. Wow. Okay, yeah. so Tim has not been everywhere I on the Earth. I certainly have I've not, Joey. <laughs> I've, I've, I've been to a couple of places, invited. but not as many as you, I think. Okay. Um, <laughs> it just, I guess you do such a better job of recording your travels Yeah, that, that than I do. could be. I don't know. I mean, I take a lot of photos and tell a lot of stories through my photos. So maybe it's just the way it stands out to you. Maybe you're trying to compete with me. I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, am, I am never trying to compete with Tim Kistner. <laughs> that's for sure. You originally, you're from Philly. It's just outside um, of Philly. Philly suburb. Okay, Montgomery yeah, County. I, Hatboro. I guess I, I focus too much on the Philly aspect. It's not Philly. It's 20 miles from Philly, to be right. <laughs> if I were from Philly, I'd have a little bit of a different accent. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because I just had Mary on, Mary Maley, and she I asked her what I should ask you about, and she had one word, arson. Why is that? Uh, I, I <laughs> she, don't know. She said to ask Tim Kistner about arson. Is there... Anything fire-related? I mean, where do we start? Um, <laughs> is there a specific story that she might be referencing? There is a couple. I told her a few stories the other day from my high school days. Um, we were on a hike out here in Ketchikan, and uh, yeah, I just kind of opened up some of these, this this old side of me back in high school when uh, a group of my friends and I would go out and set some things on fire around the neighborhood. <laughs> We had a little bit of a problem for a summer or two of uh, <laughs> pulling in some things, taking them into the woods, burning them. Uh, there's there's some specific stories that I told Mary that I haven't thought about in a few years. But, yeah, we were trouble. We were troubled kids. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hatboro, did you have a cool nickname for your gang, your arson gang? Oh, we had a couple. Um, our first gang was called the Hell's Razors. Had a scooter gang actually. Oh my god! I was probably sixteen years old, and a friend of mine, Dan Clark, uh, we would ride our razor scooters together, and we got a couple other guys to come along, and we made a scooter gang called the Hell's Razors. Um, there's actually even an old promotional video on YouTube with an Avenged Sevenfold song out there. Um, look oh it up. Look god. up that. It's gonna be in the show. Look up the Hell's sure. Razors. It's H E L L Z R A Z R Z. I think that's how it's spelled. It's Just put a Z everywhere you think there might be one. So, yeah, that was my first scooter gang, you know, back in my hometown. Um, and, you know, we, we, we raised a little bit of hell, I would say, uh, mostly involving some scootering. 
Um, we jump down some stair sets, uh, maybe jump over a little bit of lighter fluid we pour down on the ground. Oh um, you know, some, some fiery things were going on. But I would say our other uh, gang, our other group name um, was uh, FSU, known as Fuck Shit Up, which Perfect. we later learned was an actual like skinhead gang. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> we, we had no idea. You sure it didn't just later become the better known skinhead? No, game? certainly not. We actually considered changing our name after we found that out. Um, as <laughs> as much as we loved the raise hell at vandalizing arson, we were not down with any kind of racism. <laughs> um, there was even a time um, when our FSU gang, um, and I'm saying gang, we didn't do any gang related things. It was really just a group of ten of us that liked to smoke a lot of pot and. Light things on fire. It was fire. a call to action. Yeah. Having a gang name was a call to I action. I suppose. Uh, we even went as far as, uh, you know, painting a big fuck shit up um, banner across the school's uh, uh, scoreboard by the baseball field. So, um, yeah, don't tell anyone about that, but that was us. <laughs> I think it's still there. At least you can kind of see it. Okay. <laughs> Uh, we'll somehow legally indemnify you after this episode. Yeah, it's not Tim Kistner is not my real name, by the way. It's a pseudonym. So let me ask you this. How do you think Hatboro uniquely made you who you are compared to other seasonals that aren't from there? What's something you got from Hatboro that they didn't because they weren't from there? Um, well, I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with my upbringing and my family. That's a big part of my identity and who I am, I think. Um, you know, I grew up in a pretty large family on my dad's side and, you know, weekly dinners, um, super close to a lot of cousins that were my age. So I think there's a big part of my, like, uh, my sense of family with people and other seasonals, I think comes from that background. But as far as my home area, um, you know, it was a a place where you're pretty bored. The Philly suburbs aren't a really fun place to live. Now, we made made a really good time out of it, um, and we were tempted to do all this vandalism and all this, you know, debauchery as, as teenagers around there. And, and I would I would blame more so just the fact that it's another boring suburban area with people with a lot of time and a bunch of other kids that don't really have anything to do. If you don't like sports, then you don't really have a lot going on if you're in Hatboro or Horsham. Yeah. So <clears throat> where was the first place that you went out of the um, I would say m- the first place I ever went was Canada, was a trip up to New Brunswick. I think I was 16 years old, and for me, that was the first time I had ever gone further north than, I guess, New York City <laughs> um, at that point. So a good friend of mine invited me up to their family's uh, like lake house way up in New Brunswick, and it was me and a couple, uh, one other friend, Greg, who uh, I ended up doing some other traveling with later on. So it was me, Greg, and Carlo, who had, um, his family had a house up there. Um, we did a trip up to New Brunswick, and a big part of it was actually uh, taking the train all the way up to Maine by ourselves. And we were only 15 and 16 years old. Now, did you buy a ticket or did you train hop? Oh, we bought tickets, yeah. It was a proper, okay. <laughs> it was a proper Amtrak. It wasn't gang related. No, 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 I, I wouldn't have ever done anything risky like that. Um, as risky as my behavior sounds at that time, I, I was so inexperienced at doing anything that was real world. We had our little bubble. 
we did our things around town. But anything beyond that was a huge unknown for me. And I never even imagined, I couldn't imagine at the time what it would be like to get on a plane, what it would be like to get on a train. Um, those options are just something that never really even crossed my mind. So when was the first time that you traveled somewhere for a job and started maybe your seasonal career? Uh, the really big leap that I took was when I moved out to Colorado. Um, I ended up finishing, well, I dropped out of college and then went back to uh, get a, an associate's degree just with all the credits I had. And after that, I worked, a, worked in an office a job for a couple of years. Um, I worked for a language interpretation company, which was a pretty cool job. I mean, it was, it was a cushy office job, but I got to talk to interpreters uh, from all around the world. I wasn't an interpreter, but I was managing interpreters in a call center. Uh, so a big part of my job was really just talking to these guys, um, kind of listening to their phone calls to see what kind of quality they had as far as customer service. And, uh, you know, you had a lot of time to just talk to people who spoke pretty much every language in the world. Uh, and we had interpreters that spoke 11 languages. And in your off time, you could kind of just like ask them about their life, you know, like, how did you get here? You know, how did you go from, you know, living in, in, uh, in Iraq and I don't know, growing up in some tiny mountain town to now living in Connecticut and interpreting <laughs> 11 languages. Like, what's the story there? And I always, I always was fascinating with some of these guys. Is there one that sticks out in your mind? Uh, not particularly. Um, you know, there's, there's some, of the, some of the polyglots, I would say, like the guys that spoke just many languages. There was one European interpreter. I think it's is Eric something. And he spoke pretty much every... Uh, Western European language plus a bunch of Asian languages as well. Um, and you could basically put him on a phone call for, for anything. Um, he had all of the qualifications for medical interpretation, qualifications for um, like chemical and like, uh, you know, some of the more advanced um, certifications you need to not just like interpret for a doctor, but interpret for an engineering firm. Um, so he was beyond just fluent in these languages. He was, he was a god. Um, he was a true yeah. polyglot. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it's like, you know, every interpreter has a different different set of qualifications. Some really specialize in medical, most specialize in medical. Um, but to have that as well as, like, be basically a perfect interpreter, like 100% fluency in more than six languages and be qualified to handle extremely technical phone calls in any of those languages is just like mind blowing to me. Yeah. And you talk to him and he's just like, he's just like, you know, he answers his phone. Hi, this is Eric. And he's just like this friendly, friendly old guy. You'd probably never recognize <laughs> him on the street. Um, friendly neighborhood language guy. Yeah. Yeah. So people like that, I think were before I started really traveling, I would say that my connection to other cultures and like what really I think fed the fire to, uh, to travel a bit was interacting with interpreters and kind of like really realizing how big and culturally diverse the world is. I, I really didn't have that perspective uh, growing up in Hatboro, Pennsylvania. We didn't really get any kind of exposure to um, other cultures beyond, you know, some, some people of other countries that were working in, in jobs around the area. Yeah, that's coming from small town Ohio is a similar yeah. situation. Yeah, I think so. But to answer your question, I guess, um, you know, my first time moving out for a job, um, I was doing this, doing this interpretation job. It was really cool. It was pretty rewarding, pretty good money. Um, but I didn't get out at all. I mean, it was the typical nine to five office job with 
you know, is you had to request for time off a month in advance. There wasn't much vacation you could really get. It just, it didn't really seem conducive to the lifestyle that I was learning I wanted to live. So, uh, on a whim, I, uh, well, I met a friend at a Halloween party who just moved back from Colorado. Um, and he worked out there skiing at like Breckenridge or something. And he was like, he was talking about, uh, you know, skiing out there. And I was like, yeah, I'd, always, I'd, I'd love to go out there and ski. He's like, just move there. Just move there. Get a job at a ski resort. It's that easy. And I kind of laughed it off. I was like, ha ha, you know, like, that's, that's funny. You know, like, I've got everything pretty good right now. Like, that'd be a little crazy kind of giving up like where I've, where I've come to now to do that. And he's like, no, do it. And I was just like, yeah, whatever. Laughed it off. And then like the next day I woke up and I remember waking up and just thinking like, you know what, I'm going to do that. <laughs> like, I'm going to start <laughs> looking into it. Um, so, you know, I just started looking into some jobs online. I started, um, asking around, I got my dad who, who's a mechanic to ask all of his buddies at work to see if they knew anything about that area and that world and that kind of employment. And, uh, through a, a friend of my father, um, he suggested going to Copper Mountain Ski Resort. Uh, he knew that it was a pretty good resort. He knew that the workers there were a little happier than places like Vail Resorts. And uh, it was a really good lead. And I also had employee housing. So that was a big draw for me. Absolutely. Um, you know, before I started really traveling, I was always concerned about locking down a place and a job before I moved there. Um, going somewhere without a place and a job was just like a huge fear. Um, I eventually got over that, obviously. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was a big thing for me, learning that I could get a job at Copper Mountain. They had good employee housing um, and I could do it. So I ended up just applying there. Um, they called me back. Uh, I was actually hanging out with this, with this girl that I was dating that I was like super into. And it was like this really sweet, like fling that was going on. I don't know. I like, met her on Tinder or something and it was like going real well and everything. And then I get a call from Copper Mountain <laughs> and uh, they're basically like, you know, so when can you be out here? And, and you're with her and I'm you with look her. Over at her. <laughs> uh, I go up, I go upstairs to make the call and they ask me that. And, uh, I'm like, I can be out there in a week. And I go down and I, I say to her, I'm like, uh, I'm moving to Colorado next week. <laughs> and oh, then, no. of course, my I had to tell my job, which was, you know, I had a pretty, a lot of responsibility in this job. Um, and it, it was a great atmosphere. I loved my, my uh, coworkers and my bosses. <laughs> I went in the next day and I said, uh, yeah, I got to give you guys a one-week notice. <laughs> and they couldn't believe it. They thought I was joking. They're like, why would you quit? Like, you love it here. Like, you love this job. We love you. We were just going to give you a raise. <laughs> you know, they, oh my they, had, God, they, yeah. they hadn't seen it coming. I blindsided them with that. Um, sure enough, I, uh, I hustled all my stuff together in my vehicle, and uh, I drove out to Copper Mountain, uh, just near Frisco, Colorado, Summit County, high up in the Rockies, uh, to start working a customer service job in a ski resort. Uh, not a very glamorous role, but uh, I, I was going out there to do it. And that was really the beginning of all this. Yeah, you got your foot in the door. And so some of the fears that you had before you left, maybe a week or a few days before, it was like visceral fears that you're like, oh, I'm not sure if this is what I should do. And then maybe a month or two months in, tell me about that process. Uh, well, with actually with this one, I, I didn't really have as much of a reluctance or fear. I think the big reluctance I had with making this move was giving up what I had, which was something pretty good at the moment. Um, I also felt, you know, a, a lot of pride 
in everything I had going on at home. Like I finally felt like I was starting to like, um, you know, grow up a little bit. Um, so like it was a little bit of fear just leaving that all behind for nothing. Um, just, you know, dropping everything I was doing to, uh, to, to move out West. That was a little bit more of a fear. Um, but yeah, you know, once I got out there, um, you know, it was all, uh, it was probably a month of just like, of just taking everything in and understanding how different my lifestyle is now. Um, trying to make some friends, trying to just get coordinated with the area, um, and all of that. Um, but after about, um, two months, I would say, uh, it all kind of came together and I was like really loving it there and really had no regrets that I, that I made the decision to move out there. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty awesome. Like having that realization of. Yeah. So that's level one, Tim seasonal where, where was your next level up your next jump to a place that you learned even more about the lifestyle? Um, well, you know, the, the, after that, um, after Colorado, I, uh, I did a little bit of traveling. I traveled over to China for the first time to see one of my good friends. Um, and then I ended up going to Ketchikan where I met all of you lovely people in the seasonals. Um, but even like the move to Ketchikan was still, I still had that little bit of fear. I wouldn't, I didn't just move there without a job, a place or a friend. Um, I moved to Ketchikan because I secured a job with housing. Um, I would have never thought about just randomly moving to a town in Alaska with no job, no people, no housing, and and doing that. I would have never done anything like that at the time. So I'm maybe I'd say that's still like level one. Um, oh, yeah. I, I think I think the uh, the big um, big move I made to kind of like stepping it up. Um, I would probably say was was going to Australia. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the things in between that, but basically, you know, the thing that like really, actually, let me, let me backtrack a second. Um, I would say the next winter when I moved to Jackson Hole, Wyoming was, uh, a a next level kind of thing as far as learning. So you went from Ketchikan, your first summer in Ketchikan to Jackson Hole that winter? That's what I ended up doing. Yes. Okay. Um, I wanted to do another ski resort job. I wanted to go somewhere really, really cool. Um, you know, with really good skiing, like incredible landscape, um, you know, just, just like the ideal, like as, as over the top as you could get for a ski area in the winter. And I knew Jackson Hole was like a wild place to go and do it. Um, now I didn't know anything about the place. Um, I didn't do my research about, uh, the size, the isolation, uh, the environment, um, the social landscape. Um, I learned a lot about that place and a lot about, uh, the kind of research I need to do before I go somewhere. Um, you know, and this, the big leap for me this time was moving there without a place secured. I had a job. It sounds like a place, at least from what I've heard of Jackson Hole, that's a place where, as opposed to Ketchikan, where it's, uh, the price of failure is very low. You're going to find something, but Jackson Hole is a place that seems where like the price of failure is really high. If you don't find a place, you're you're out. Yeah, it's not easy. Like, not only are the wages there extremely low, but the cost of housing is extremely high, and the job market is very competitive. Even and that's for a low wage job. It's hard to find the lowest paying job. 
Um, it, it's very difficult. And, you know, maybe I just had a bad year. I don't want to say that it's always like this. Um, but for wintertime, I think it's a lot more limited because housing in this city is so limited. And a lot of people want to go out there and ski for the winter. Um, it's not like a place like you have in, in Colorado where you can live in the neighboring town and uh, pay decent rent there and get a second job in a restaurant in a nearby town. I mean, Jackson's a pretty small town of about 10,000 people, and a lot of those jobs are taken up. So, yeah, it was a really make-or-break place. Um, I moved out there. I drove out there without a place. I had a job lined up at the ski resort. Um, luckily, my prior experience in Colorado um, really helped me get a job at Jackson. Um, which, thinking back to it, I'm extremely lucky because there's it's not nearly as big of a resort. They don't hire a lot of people every winter. There's a lot of return, um, and everyone's trying to get a job there because you get a ski pass that's worth over two thousand dollars if you if you work there. Um, yeah, it, it's a big deal to to get that kind of job. So I was lucky enough to to land that. Um, so I drove out there, and I didn't know anyone. Um, I found like an Airbnb. This was my first time using Airbnb and it was about four years ago before Airbnb was as big or as competitive as it is now. Um, and the cheapest place I could find an Airbnb was like $80 a day. And it wasn't a place. It was a couch in someone's condo, uh, outside of town. It was just, it, it shouldn't have been listed on there. I mean, it was <laughs> it was super misleading. You know, it looked like a pretty it's a decent pirate place. Airbnb. Um, yeah, like I thought I was getting my own room and everything, and I'm like, cool. I can. I booked a week for it. I can stay here a week and kind of figure out a house as I'm as I'm staying on the, at this place. And I get there and realize it's a couch in this woman's living room in like an efficiency condo where she's always around. It was super awkward, um, but you know, I made the best of it. And every single day, I would just go into town, go online, look in newspapers, and was scrubbing the area for housing. And it, I was there for, I ended up in this house for about three weeks, um, paying $80 a day to stay there. Um, it was already depleting a lot of my money. Um, and uh, it just wasn't happening. I was, I was looking at so many places. None of them were cheaper than like $1,500 a month for a room. Um, it was just like, it was really difficult to, to find anything viable. Um, there were a couple places I, I ended up, I started to reach out to other people I knew were looking and we tried to like get together and like try to find like a two or a three bedroom that we could like rent out together and like put money down the security deposit. Um, and also like the housing there, um, they always require like a, uh, first, last and deposit. So some of the, if you've got a fifteen hundred dollar a month place, you're putting down like forty five hundred bucks straight up, um, and that's just uh, did I do my math right? Yeah, yeah. Sounds uh, good. <laughs> uh, and that's just like you know I had it some savings, insane. but that's like that's like most of my money right there. Uh, right. So it was really stressful. Um, fortunately, I ended up finding out that a friend from Ketchikan, um, Callen and uh, Kelly. Uh, they, uh, they had a place in town. I didn't even know they were there. I think I bumped into them at the ski resort and found out that they were also living Jackson. So I ended up staying in their house, um, like on their couch for, I don't know, a few weeks, um, until I ended up finding a place. And yeah, it was just like, it was super stressful. And it was just this, like you said, the stakes were so high. Um, you can't really just move to a nearby town and get a second job. Like it's Jackson Hole. The closest thing to Jackson Hole is going over the pa over the pass 
to Victor, Idaho, which is like a pretty treacherous uh, climb <laughs> in the winter time. It's people do it. People commute that way every day, but I I did not feel like it was a good idea to commute an hour or so over an icy mountain path to work. Like it just didn't seem right. Yeah, especially I mean, do those people miss work occasionally? I'm sure they really do, bad? but uh yeah, I'm sure they do, but I hate commuting for one. Yeah, absolutely. Um and I wanted to live in Jackson. I wanted like the I wanted to live in Jackson Hole and get that experience, which I realized the that mindset and that experience in itself is a commodity. Like people live in Jackson to say that they live in Jackson. Yeah. And I guess that's what I was reaching for. You wanted that celebrity. I guess I wanted that status. Um, I didn't really <laughs> see it like that at the time, but stepping back, it's like, it's a pretty elitist community. And I guess I wanted to be like part of that. Um, so it's just a completely different uh, dynamic um, in the wintertime. I can't speak for the summer. Like I said, maybe I just had an unlucky year. Um, but it was, uh, it was an experience where I really learned that not every place is the same. And, and there's nothing like Ketchikan. Ketchikan's really like the most... Um, unique, inclusive, and you know, low stakes kind of place that I've ever been. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I've started telling people it's like in a video game you have level one, level two, level three, but Ketchikan's the tutorial. It's like you can't lose. You try whatever you want. It's almost always gonna work. So it's, it's very, it's very nice to know that I found it. I'm very lucky. It's not challenging. It is like the least challenging place to just like pick up and go yeah. to, you know, not only for like setting yourself up with a job and a place to live, but finding people and things to do. They'll um, find yeah, you. It's you just, find yeah, they them. find you. You do not have to try hard. So after your Jackson Hole, how, how long was it until you went to um, Europe? Uh, actually, my... Um, the big trip I did to Europe was before I uh, jumped out and started doing seasonal work. Uh, the year I went to Europe was actually the year I dropped out of college. Oh, okay. Um, so I would say, you know, that I guess that was kind of my first job somewhere else, but um, it was really more about traveling and doing some volunteer work. Um, so that was the first time I went. I to get you there, do you want me to go into that direction? Well, I was going to say your your Europe stories the the few I've heard just a little bit in detail remind me a lot of uh, Cal Fussman who talks about, uh, you know, he went, went to Europe, bought a one-way ticket, got on a train and realized that he had to find someone that would let him stay in his house on that train because he didn't have much money. And so, you know, he tells the story about seeing the old woman asking about her goulash, having people translate for her. She invites him back to her house for goulash. And then that sets off a chain of meeting friends and family, friends and family, and he's in Europe for 10 years, staying with all these different people, helping do this, you know, eating this food, drinking this homemade alcohol, all this stuff. And your stories from Europe kind of remind me of that. Yeah, I would say my... There, there's certainly the first time I went to Europe. There was certainly a chain reaction of these kind of things happening. As far as like the 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 level of challenge it was to go there um, and to do what I did there, it was fairly easy and it came together really well. And I, I a big part of that is from my buddy Greg, who I did the trip with. Um, you know, that year I went to Europe. Um, it was basically after I dropped out of school. I was talking with my buddy. 
moved back in with my parents, talking with my buddy about uh, making some kind of trip that summer. And we were just like throwing around some ideas and, you know, he's like, yeah, let's go, you know, maybe let's go up here or maybe let's go to Canada or something again. And uh, I was like, oh no, I was thinking about going to like France or something. And he's like, oh, okay. I was just thinking something that we could drive to, but <laughs> like, yeah, I'll, I'll go, I'll go to Europe with you. Um, so cool. We started, uh, and, and then we also realized too, that one of our, one of our good friends from high school, um, his family had a vineyard in France in like Bordeaux or something. And, uh, we were like, maybe we can go work on the vineyard with Dan's family. You know, <laughs> like it was, that was like one thing we were trying to think Let's of like ways Dan. that we could do this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were trying to think about ways that we could go there. Um, and we weren't, neither of us were the kind of people at that time that could just book a one-way ticket somewhere and like wing it. At that time, we wanted a bit more of a plan. We wanted to have a place lined up. We wanted to know what we were doing. You know, definitely leave some room for some spontaneity. But um, we uh, we wanted to like go somewhere where we could stay um, and be comfortable for a little bit to to travel around. Um, so that's when we actually discovered a workaway. Um, we discovered, I think we through like a Reddit thread, we found a workaway.info. Uh, which is like woofing. A lot of people have heard of woofing or HelpX or something. It's another one of those. And uh, essentially, we, we just started looking at it, and it's really just a network of people looking for volunteer work. Um, it can be anything from babysitting their kids to looking after a farm to keeping an old man company. Um, there's like any job you could think of um, is on is on this website. Um, and it's not just Europe. It's, it's worldwide. Um, so we found that. We started looking at some of these profiles and we're like, these are some cool things. Like we saw some things like, you know, you know, work on an alpaca farm in Germany or make chocolate in the Pyrenees with our family or like just like these really wacky kind of titles that just sounded so cool. We were even looking at ones in like, you know, Norway and it's like, you know, help my family cross the fjord every day to get groceries. Oh, it was God. like something like crazy like that. Um, I wish I did that one thing back to it. Yeah, that um, sounds yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, we saw all these just like uh, alluring things. And again, this is before I went out on my own to Colorado. This is, um, you know, before I did anything really big. Um, and I had to help my friend, so I was much more comfortable. And he was really persistent on a lot of the planning. So we just found a couple of profiles we liked. We sent messages, and uh, we had everything set up. Um, the first place we went um, was in Germany. Uh, we went to an alpaca farm in Germany. And I'll never forget that feeling. Um, it was For me, it was the first time ever being on an airplane. Um, that was the first flight I had ever been on. I was terrified to get on an Airbus. You're heading um, to an alpaca farm. Yeah, I'm heading row. to an out. And, you know, it didn't really hit us. You know, we, we had this all planned out. Like, we had the profiles. We had pictures. We had talked to the host. We had pictures of them. Like, we knew exactly where on the map where it was. We knew which trains we had to get on to get there. Like, everything was, like, laid out. There was nothing scary or unknown about it. It, it was pretty cozy. Um, but there was a point where we, we traveled. You know, we got on a couple of planes, a couple of trains. And it was at the point where we got dropped off in the middle of, um, I don't know, some small town. I think it was, I think it was a town called Bad Kreuznach, which was right outside of the workaway. We get off with all of our bags, off the off the train, and we go to a payphone, and we call our host, and we're like, "Yep, we're we're downtown here. You know, you can pick us up whenever you're ready." She's like, "Oh yeah, okay, I'll be there soon." We hang up the phone, and then we just kind of like say to each other, "Like, 
man, like, what if she just, what if she shows up and it's like not who we think? <laughs> what if, what if this person shows up and it's just like a complete asshole or somebody really scary who forces us in a car? Like, we what started if we get getting fished. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like all these things uh, started running through our minds. We're just like, man, we just travel all the way over here, and we're just like, we're like right here. We're like ducks in the sitting ducks, you yep. know. Just, <laughs> yep. um, there was like that moment where it's just like we just have to, just have to trust it, and uh, and you know, I'm like Greg, like what happens when she pulls up? Do we, uh, do we like ask any certain questions do we like take a picture of the car and send it to someone like we we're trying to like think of i don't know i think we were really just like worst case scenario we we're also extremely exhausted from this yeah, like absolutely you know 18 20 hour journey to get there um which i kind of laugh at now <laughs> that's that's nothing now it is um so yeah um it was just like we had this anxiety and uh you know greg's like well guess we're just gonna have to get in the car and see where she takes us <laughs> and that's really his attitude I've heard that kind of thing said a lot by him um so you know sure enough she picks us up and um you know she speaks perfect English because she had been an interpreter um for the military for years so her English is like better than ours um and she's just the nicest woman and she like stopped at the grocery store she's like oh buy as many groceries as you want um you know like we're gonna go and I'm going to go away for a week after uh, you guys get here um, or after tomorrow. Uh, anywho, um, so, you know, we went to her farm and everything, and we we're just, like, pretty amazed by this this whole experience of just, like, getting in this car, going to the German countryside, going off a mountain to this, like, super isolated, you know, 600-year-old farmhouse. Uh, and then we just kind of, uh, sh- you know, she's like, I'm not going to make you work today. Like, let's all have a beer together. <laughs> and, and, and it was the first day. And then we're just like, this is crazy. Um, and right after that, she said, uh, she told us she was going to be going away for business for like a week. And she's like, here's the food. Eat whatever you want. Here's a couple of little jobs you can do around the farm, which were jobs that just involved like fixing a couple of fences or something. She's like, yeah, just uh, enjoy yourself and just, uh, you know, make yourself at home and do whatever you want in the house. Here's the car. You can drive it into town. And it was just this person we didn't know at all that was trusting us. You've got her house, her car, her herd of alpacas for a week. We've got everything. <laughs> um, and, 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 it's, and it's totally, it was like, I think it was so culturally shocking to us because we're from the Philadelphia suburbs where you can't leave your groceries in your car with your door unlocked or somebody might go steal them. It's, you know, it's not a place yeah. where you like really, you really just trust a stranger. And she threw, she put everything into our hands and like embraced us. And uh, I think that was like really defining to me and really important to like, as a, as a new traveler, that was a really cool lesson to, to learn is like, you know, maybe I can trust people. So she was cool. You were comfortable in that situation quickly. How were the alpacas? Oh, they were awesome. So we were <laughs> immediately introduced to the alpacas. Uh, there were 28 of them. Uh, when I first saw them, they all looked the same, but she had a particular name for each alpaca. And um, she knew what each one from each one. There were like five alpacas that were dark brown that looked exactly the same, and they all had these unique names. 
and she was able to just be like, oh no, that's that's so and so. Oh, and that's so and so. Like you, you know, they look different, and they, they just look like <laughs> alpacas to me. Uh, so you know, she she had all of them named. Um, you know, she had this farm where she kept her alpacas, and she did it mostly as like a labor of love. She loved animals. She loved keeping animals. So the farm was really just about like her pets. Now she did process the wool um, to make some yarn, um, to make fiber and all sorts of, you know, like clothing and stuff. She did process the wool, um, but it wasn't profitable at all. Um, so it was kind of just like she had the alpacas. She loved them. She loved taking care of them. And then she had the craft of dealing with their wool and making things from that. Um, so to her, it was kind of just like, you know, these are her friends. And she had this big property, too, that she inherited. Um, but they were cool. I remember the first day. Did they spit? They did spit, yeah. It is it is still to this day one of the worst smelling things I've ever smelled. <laughs> um, and I, I've traveled a bit around China where you get some pretty stinky foods and just some stinky rotting things on the street. Um, but man, the alpaca smit, alpaca spit smells horrible. Oh god! Um, it's just their stomach acid. They're they're just pulling up their stomach acid and spitting. So they're it. like puke spitting. It's puke. Oh, yeah, god. it's not spit. It's it's undigested grass and stomach acid. Um, but they don't spit for any reason. You know, they really spit if you piss them off or if they're uncomfortable. Um, they're not just going to, like, go by the fence. And they're also, alpacas actually are less aggressive than llamas. Llamas are known to spit uh, for no reason. Alpacas, you really got to piss them off to have them spit at you. <laughs> um, but it, it does happen. And it, well, they spit at each other, and usually it's, like, collateral damage oh, if you're God. in <laughs> Innocent bystanders. Yeah, yeah, they're funny animals. I mean, the the first day, uh, one of our jobs was to spray them with the hose. <laughs> they they had a pretty. It, gets it was the like, hose. It was like really, yeah. Uh, it was really warm for I don't know May. I think when we were there, it might have been April or May, um, and their fur was getting really long, so they were getting overheated. So one of the jobs was to go by the fence with the hose, turn on the hose, and just start spraying them. And at first, they're afraid of the water. They back away. They all, they all kind of tuck together in groups, too. And they back away. And then, like, you, you, arc, you arc the water so it comes down on them, get them a little bit, you know. Uh, and then they feel it a little bit. Yeah, get them comfortable. And then they, they kind of inch in a little closer, and they like it a little more. And then they start coming out, and then eventually they just put their bare chest into the water, their heads back, and they're just, like, getting sprayed in the face and in the neck, and they're just kind of moving and wiggling as they're just taking on the cold water. Oh, and they love it. I mean, they love it. They jump in front of each other to try to, like, fight over the stream of water. Um, and that was that was the job. Like, that was one of our jobs every day on this farm It's just spraying these damn animals with the hose. <laughs> it was, oh man, you know, you could turn on the hose and you see them running down, you know? Like oh yeah. The ones that knew they, that the ones that remembered how much they liked the it. The call of the herd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was great. Um, so, you know, that was just one of the many funny little perks that they did. <laughs> and did you shear them? Yeah, we did end up shearing them. Um, with the, like butt clippers or? Yeah, with the, the same kind of clippers you would shear a sheep with. Okay. Um, so, you know, industrial grade, like animal very wide clippers. Yeah. Really wide, you know, these really big blades on them. Um, the problem is alpaca fur is like significantly finer than uh, lamb's wool. So there's certain clippers that are designed for them, but we didn't have them. Uh, we had, uh, lamb shears. So we had to basically like douse them in oil, like as you're shearing them. 
Otherwise, it would clog up the blades. So it was, like, super difficult to shear them. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I... <laughs> It was a it was a, it was a fun task to to shear these guys all twenty eight of them. Um, we needed a five man team to do it. Um, you may have seen people shear uh, uh, wool off of a sheep, and it's just like a one person job. They can kind of just walk uh, up to it, squat on top of the sheep, just do it real quick and throw them off. And alpaca. Um, do you want me to talk about the whole process of shearing? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very interested in hearing about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's it takes there, five people. To shear one, I would say like so. It takes one. a team, um, and a big part of that is just like rounding them up and keeping them in the pen to be ready because they're terrified. Is there is there one of the five just to take the spit? You're just blocking <laughs> all the other four from the spit. Kind of, yeah. There is somebody. <laughs> there is somebody that holds a towel over their head. <laughs> wow. And it keeps the spit away from you. <laughs> um, but you know the process goes. So so there's two types of alpaca. Uh, that we were dealing with. Um, one was called, I, th- I believe it was called Surrey, and the other, I can't quite remember the name, but there's the one that has the really long hair that looks like a mop, and the other ones that look just like giant puffballs. Those are two types. Um, the ones with the long hair, more aggressive, uh, they get sheared every two years, so they're much less comfortable with it. Uh, whereas the big poofball ones, um, they get sheared every year. They've got much softer, fluffier fur, so it's a little easier to get off. Um, and it's also, I think it's a little less valuable as well because it's, you can get it more frequently. Um, anywho, the whole process with shearing these guys, it was a whole event. It was a three day event. Um, I mean, and it was like three good, like eight hour days, which, which the work lifestyle there is not usually like an eight hour day. It's usually a lot chiller than that. Did people come from the village to watch or were they over it? We had one. We had one villager help us. It was uh, our host and her two kids, who were like in their thirties, um, and some like local woman with no teeth who didn't speak any English. Um, she was really funny. <laughs> her name. <laughs> um, so yeah, the the process was basically like this. We have a an indoor pen in the stable, the largest one. Uh, we would. Somebody would be rounding a couple of them in there because it's too big to fit them all, obviously. So we had somebody round them in there, and rounding an alpaca is not easy. Um, sometimes you can put a halter on them, um, almost like a, you know, like you put on a horse to all around their face. We didn't really do that with these guys because it made them pretty uncomfortable, and my host didn't really like it. So um, to to get them around, you basically had these two long sticks, like thin fiberglass poles, and you held them out from your arms. So if you're behind an alpaca, it wants to run away from you. So the idea is you basically hold out these big fiberglass uh, rods, you get behind the alpaca, and you direct it. You're almost like controlling it to direct it um, into the pen. So that was one of the jobs was to get them into the pen. Inside the pen, we had a table that folded. Um, it went from a standard table position, and then it folded vertically with the floor. So the first step was getting hold of the alpaca, which really meant just grabbing that thing and with your hands around its neck, wherever you can grab it, its legs, whatever, and pushing it against this table. Once it's against the table, you strap the legs together. Um, You basically hogtie the animal um, to the side of this table. And then once it's in a good position, secure to the table, it can't move, you flip the table into a table position. And then once you're in that table position, somebody's holding the head, 
there's somebody holding each of the two legs. Um, and then there's usually one or two people actually shearing the animal. So they're laying on their side. So they're laying on the side. Exactly. Um, and then you start shearing them and they scream. They're screaming like, like you're murdering them. Um, not only are they screaming, but they start pissing and shitting and spitting and just like they are, you know, jerking around trying to get off. I mean, they're strong animals. Um, they, you are torturing them. It is like some kind of medieval German torture device. I'm sure there is one actually that's similar to that table. Wow. Uh, so, um, you do the one side, um, and you be careful not to cut them because if you get too close, you'll just cut a big gash into them. It did happen a couple of times. Um, because they're moving, they're jerking around. They hate it, especially the younger ones that have softer skin. Um, so if you do cut them open, we'd have to spray it down with a certain like anest, uh, or, uh, what's it called? Um, you know, like a anesthetic to uh, keep it from the pain. Not the pain. Uh, no, something sterilizer. to clean it out, like a sterilizer okay, spray yeah. thing. I don't know. Um, Just Germax. Yeah, and then and then <laughs> it was actually this weird like silver stuff. It looked like silver spray paint. But it was some kind of metal that's like, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Like from Mad Max Fury Road? I have no idea what that is. <laughs> I don't watch golf. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, and then sometimes we had to stitch them too if it was a big enough gash. Uh, and then once that side's done, you have to flip them over. So you unstrap the legs from the table, and then all together everybody flips the body of this animal to the other side of the table, and then you shear it from there. And all the meanwhile, you're taking the, the wool. This is why you need five people, because there's also somebody who has to take the wool, the good quality uh, fiber, and put it into different bags. There's different qualities of wool. So the softer, nicer stuff around the neck and the belly, you put in a certain bag. The stuff from the legs and you know the tail and the hind, um, that goes into different bags. It's a different grade. And you kind of have to separate this all the while the animal's kicking, shitting, pissing, screaming, spitting, all of that. This sounds like such an intense situation. Yeah, it it is. And this was 28 alpacas. Now, some of them were pretty submissive. There were a couple of the younger ones that just didn't really know what were going on and realized that they were overpowered and would kind of just like let it go. They were pretty easy. But I'd probably say about two-thirds of them uh, were just violent yeah. <laughs> in this. Um, and then you get them off the table, put them back on their feet, and then they're all pissed off, but they walk out of the pen, and you know they, it's, it's kind of crazy how thin their necks are after you shear them, yeah. too. They look like whole other animals. They're ready for the hose after that. Oh, no more hose for them. They don't need it anymore. They're not, they're not overheated. Oh, well. We should have given them, given the hose to, you know. <laughs> yeah. To, to, I guess, cleanse them a little bit, almost like <laughs> have a rebirth or something. Oh, God. <laughs> Just a Germex bath. <laughs> so, needless to say, I learned so much from this experience. The shearing was really like uh, the highlight or like the big job with the workaway experience in Germany. Um, I'd never been around animals before. I'd never worked on a farm. Um, you know, I'd, I'd never done anything, anything in that element before. Um, and I walked away from this month-long experience in Germany, and I was like, man, I learned how to take care of alpacas. I learned how to build fences. Um, there, there were all these, like, little, like, handyman skills that she just made us do around the farm, and it was like, cool, I have this whole new set of skills that I had knew nothing about before I did this. Um, and not only that, but I was immersed in the culture. I was living in a German household. 
um, eating all German foods and, um, you know, trying to speak some German to the locals. Um, but really, like, experience the culture aspect of, of what it's like to, to live in another country. Um, and coming from my background and, you know, the Philly suburbs, um, I was just like, man, it's awesome here. This is a great place to live. Why would I ever want to live in my hometown again? Yeah. Did you, this is something I'm interested in because I, my first overseas trip was to Thailand and I found myself at night after a full day of travel, like going through the cities or towns or whatever. And I'm, there's so many situations that are completely foreign to me that my brain is always on high alert, either learning or wondering, you know, if I see this, that means I don't know. Like, what does that mean? Because here, you have a conversation, you walk down the street, you know what to expect. You know what one thing is going to lead yeah. to another. You yeah. know what all that. But being over there, I had no clue. And right. so I was always watching, always focused, always listening. All my my perception was always like t- cranked to 11. Yeah, and so yeah. at night I would be so tired. Oh, I yeah, would the, fall asleep the, the immediately. Yeah. Did you yeah. did you have that? I didn't experience that as much in Europe. Um and I think for one um it's because I spent a lot of time on these like these work away homestay things. So I was pretty comfortable. Um, and I was also living in rural areas where it was like pretty slow and I think pretty easy to digest. Um, the only like moments I remember being in Germany and France that, um, I experienced a similar thing were a couple of times when I went to some cities. Um, there was a time when I went to, uh, um, to Cologne in Germany or what do they call it in English? (laughs) I always forget the English name. Is it, did they call it Cologne? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't. I don't remember what they what, how it's pronounced there. It doesn't matter. Cologne. Um, yeah, but it's it we we would say Köln in German, and it was uh, we went there for some like festival, like some some summer festival thing, and that was one of those times where there were just like a million people out on the street. Um, you know, everybody was speaking German. Everybody was like eating these foods, and there were like these little booths of just like things that I didn't really understand or recognize. Um, and you know, like we got lost a couple of times and those were the times where I felt, I think that overstimulation, um, and coming back was just like getting back to the farm where it's like nice and comfortable and like nice and, you know, quiet and and great at the end of the little, the little trips to the cities. Um, yeah, there was definitely that like unwinding where it's just like, you know, that was was a lot. I can breathe. Um, I would say the most, the, the greatest culture shock I experienced in, in Europe during that trip was uh, going to Paris, actually. Um, so we spent a month on this farm in Germany. We were really understanding the culture. We were really starting to understand the language a bit um, and the pace of life li- living in a rural community. And then all of a sudden, we get on a train and we go to France and t- to Paris um, in the middle of some like weekend big city festival. And it was just like, oh, my God, like we, we don't understand anything anyone is saying like we don't know anything about the city it's huge there's people everywhere you know you look at people and you're not sure like who you can ask or trust or just talk to um it was that same it was that that shocking kind of thing um but it really doesn't compare to going a place that's so culturally different and confusing um you know places in asia that are just like the 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 formalities for doing and doing anything are just so different 
Um, I mean, at least in Europe, like the languages aren't that different from from you know English. It's not as crazy and foreign as an as an Asian language. That's tonal. Yeah. Um. So you know you kind of you can kind of get your bearings a little more easily in Europe. Um. But you know it it did happen at times going to cities and stuff just being overwhelmed. I had a situation in Thailand where I was trying to get to Lopuri, and I'm sitting where or I'm standing where I think this bus is supposed to be and i go ask somebody and i say lopery lopery i'm trying to go to lopery but i'm saying thai words and he's like oh yeah over there over there over there and i'm like all right and i go stand there again and some guy comes over and he's like where where are you trying to go and i say lopery and he goes oh no that's not here and i was like lopery the bus is supposed to be here and he's like no and so i keep saying lopery over and over while I'm out. and then I I think you know what what if I try saying lopery I yeah, say lopery it up a bit yeah absolutely completely different he says yeah the that bus is right here yep, yep like yep. what what <laughs> lopery lopery there are no town names anywhere close to either of them and he's just that one little sound is like no you're in the wrong place. <laughs> it's like what? And when I I would go into a restaurant, and I would you know either say what I wanted or point at something on the menu, and they would look at me like, "What? What are you here for?" Yeah, and I'm like, and I would show them my money, rub my belly, <laughs> point at what's on the menu, and they'd be like, "What do you? Yeah. What yeah, do you that's want?" What I, that's exactly <laughs> like, what. What? That's exactly what I mean by like those kind of formalities. Yeah. Um, it's the same in China. If you want something on a menu or you want like something behind the counter at like a shop and you just point to it, they're just like, what, what do you want? What are you doing? <laughs> Why like, are you doing there, that? There's no like, they just, that, that gesture isn't understood the same way. But if you make that gesture uh, in China, for instance, if you go behind, if you point to something behind the counter and you just say, Jiga, then they know exactly what you want. And Jiga basically means that. All it means is this or that, and it, it implies that you're pointing to something. But if you don't, oh, okay. if you don't make that like uh, implication, like they're just like you're just making what is arm that? You're movements. just making like a point, and they're just like, why, why are you making that finger gesture at me? Yeah. <laughs> so there's like there's such a little thing like that, um, and that's one of the reasons I love traveling in China so much. Is there's like these really simple cheat codes <laughs> that make travel there like like so so much easier. Um, yeah, like you can. I don't know. There's there's a couple. Are we gonna get a like list that. of Tim's Asian cheat codes someday? Yeah, I, I could I could uh, whip one up. I could do something like that. Yeah, there's, a, there's a couple of things. Yeah, I mean, especially I, I know more so about China than anything else. Um, and I'd probably say that's because China's like pretty difficult to travel um, compared to like Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia has a lot more tourism. There's more of an established tourism industry, so you're never too far from somebody who can can speak a little bit of English. China, you're just totally screwed. Yeah. Like, if you're in a major city, it's it's okay. But if you try to go anywhere else, like, it's good luck. <laughs> if you don't know, like, a, a couple little things to help you get around, like, you can really easily get overwhelmed and just, like, totally stressed out. Um, so I haven't heard much of your China stories. What's What's the best one? Give me, oh, man. or give me one of the the China highlights. Um, I mean, like, there's because you were you were just there this winter, right? Yeah, yeah I was just there in um, 
I think it was January. Yeah, I was there for like three weeks. Um, and I met I met my good friend Greg. I keep mentioning. Um, we should really get him interviewed. Yeah, <laughs> we could really. Yeah, I'd love to. He lives in China. Uh, so I will travel. <laughs> I'll go over there. Yeah. So a good friend of mine. Um, he ended up the same year I started doing seasonal work. He moved to China to teach English. Um, and kind of went out on a whim and he's been there, I don't know, four years now and he loves it. Um, he makes good money. He loves traveling around there. He loves the food. I mean, just a million different reasons. Uh, every, every he comes back to America, he just like, he looks forward to it. Then he gets here and he's just like, oh man, I forgot in America, you can't just spit anywhere you want. <laughs> oh man, I forgot you can't smoke in a cab here. Greg's like, an alpaca. He's like, you know, so jaded, you know? Um, yeah, but um, sorry, what was the question? I, I got a little sidetracked. Uh, I haven't heard any of your China stories. I want at least one. Okay, all right. I guess I'll, I guess I'll take one um, from this most recent um, uh, experience there. And I, I told a story the other day to a new zipliner here in Ketchikan um, who just like asked me something about China, and I went on this whole story that I completely forgot about. <laughs> um, and I was I was talking a little bit about how how difficult it can be to travel around there if you don't really know how things work, um, if you don't know any of the language or just just how like how things get there because there's a lot of little cultural and travel things that are just not really um, out there. I mean, I'm sure you can find them in some guides, but it's like, it really helps to talk to somebody about this. Um, so I was talking about, you know, first of all, um, in China, anything Google is blocked. Google, Facebook, any of the apps associated with those things. If you have a phone that has a Google platform, it does not work in China. You can't pull up Google Maps and look up directions. Um, unless you get a VPN and get that all, all that stuff figured out first. But right. if you don't know this and you go there, you know, you land in a city and you're like, oh, I'm going to look up how to get to this national park I want to go to. You pull up Google Maps, you, it doesn't exist. You've got to use Bing Maps or, uh, you know, a different search engine there. So that's like one of the things that's just like is pretty limited right away if you don't know going there. Um, and even just the way like the buses and trains work there. Uh, China is such a, a rapidly developing country, and like things just things change by the day. Yeah, one of the most uh, challenging aspects I think of traveling around China is uh, navigating the bus and the train system, um, because it's just there's so many things that change there. Any guide that was written about it m is most likely not up to date. Um, there's just it's just so rapidly developing. And if there's some things you don't know about navigating the buses and the trains, like it's really easy to miss a bus or a train and have difficulty figuring it out. Especially if um, you don't have Google telling you when your train's going to show up. You don't have Google and you just can't, you can't just like ask anyone. Like it's, it's just like there's nobody to ask. Um, it, it depends. If you're in a bigger city, you know, like Beijing or Shanghai or, you know, I don't know, any, any larger, more known city with foreigners, it, it's not going to be as hard. Uh, but for, for my situation, I was in the city of Kunming, um, which most Westerners have never heard of. It's, and it's still a city of like 10 million people. That's the crazy thing about China. You have dozens of cities that we've never heard of or, and we would never be able to pronounce. And this city will just casually have, you know, 10 million people in it. It's just, it's mind-blowing. So we went to, we went to Kunming and our, our, uh, our plan was to take a bus 
uh, out to this other city called Lijiang. And Lijiang is like this ancient city that's um, situated in the mountains, kind of near Tibet. Um, and there's just like these really amazing hikes and like gorges out there, which that was the plan. Get, get out to Lijiang, base ourselves out there, and do some hiking and exploring in that area because there's a lot of really cool stuff. So we went to the bus station. Um, a, a, a big thing that you have to do sometimes is you have to practice getting to the bus station or the train station. or the, <laughs> You have to like go the day before to see how long it's going to take and see what kind of hang-ups you're going to have. So the day before, uh, we, we went out to the bus station and, you know, see, went to see how long it took and where it was exactly. We bought our tickets um, for the next morning, and it was a bus. It was an eight- or nine-hour bus ride out to Lijiang. Um, and we knew how long it would take us, so we were kind of prepared there, um, so we weren't just walking into an unfamiliar place. So the next day, we get all of our stuff. Um, you know, we just have, like, a big backpack each, um, not an overstuffed backpack by any means, but, like, a you know, decent-sized backpack, all of our items on us. And uh, we get a cab down to the bus station um, for, like, I don't know, an 8 a.m. departure. Go down to the bus station, stock up on snacks, you know, all that, all the things we need for a trip, booze, snacks, cigarettes. I mean, you can drink and smoke wherever, whenever. (laughs) It's just, like, it's awesome. I mean, you can get a little bottle of liquor and just hang out in the bus and just, you know, sip on it as you're going through town. Um, so, you know, went to this bus station and it's packed full of people. I mean, typical China, it's just packed full of people. There's lines to everything. Um, if you try getting in line, somebody is going to force themselves in front of you in line. That's what happens there. When you go to buy a ticket, somebody's just going to come in the front of the line and force themselves right in front of you and take your spot. And then five other people are going to be behind that person if they see them successful. That's how the lines work there. It's one of those things you just have to know that that's what you can expect. How do you prevent that? You just have to, like, push, get in there. Like, get in front of the window and block it with your hands. Like, the ticket window, you got to get your elbows up and completely block it out. Um, Because there's always going to be some fucker that tries to do it. (laughs) Like, people who have never been there, like, are nude or they're like, oh, man, they're so rude. They're so rude, this and that. But it's like... That's, that's just a cultural difference. Like, that's just how it goes there. Um, they probably don't perceive that as rude. They probably don't like it. Um, but that type of, like, but if that you're level weak, of matters. Get out of the way. Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, so, you know, we, we ended up getting, getting into the bus terminal through these lines. Um, we're in the bus terminal. It's almost like, a, it's kind of like a square-shaped terminal with all these different gates that go to the buses. And uh, we find a bus to Lijiang, has a sign and a time on it. It's just a terminal. And, uh, you know, we've got about a half hour, and we notice that the bus isn't outside the terminal, and there's nobody in line. And my buddy, who's traveled a lot around China, he's like, Something's not right. Something's not right. Something's fucked up here. Like, this isn't right. Like, if they, half hour before the bus, there should be like 100 people trying to like budge into that. Like, that's if. For an empty terminal, the bus isn't going to be there. He knew it. So we're just like, okay, like let's uh, figure out where this bus is going to be. We go and ask, um, old, I don't know, some lady by that terminal. And my friend Greg can, can speak a bit of Chinese like pretty well. So we ask them in Chinese um, where the bus is coming to Lijiang. And she says, outside, outside, outside. That's all she says. She's outside, outside. She says, go right, go outside. You know, go out the door, go outside. And we're just like, okay, like... So she means the other terminal, like go outside to the terminal on the right. 
um, where there was a big line and where there were a bunch of buses stacked up. So we're like, okay, this looks right. And we go over there and we're just like, something's not right. Something looks, something still looks fucked up here. Like the bus, the bus would probably be here. And he asked a couple of people and they weren't going to Lee Um, so we're like, all right, no, this isn't right. So we asked another person and they just kept saying, go outside, go outside. And it turns out what they were suggesting was go out, exit the entire bus station. And we're like, okay, maybe the bus is going to pick us up on the side of the road or something. Um, Sure, like things change here. You never know what to expect. So you go outside and there's just like nowhere where the bus could pick you up. It's just like highway. (laughs) It's like there's a little like kind of like a parking lot where the security could pull in like at the entrance of the terminal. So there's just like this little narrow parking lot, but there's nowhere a bus could like pull over and pick you up. And we're just like, you know, all right, 10 minutes before the bus departs, where is it? (laughs) Where could it be? Uh, nowhere, nowhere to be found. So we asked the we asked the police. Dude, where's my bus? <laughs> Dude, where's my bus? I know. Um, and I, and I, and at the same time, we're standing. Everybody's staring at us because we're the only foreigners there. And there's people in this city that have never seen a white person. <laughs> uh, so we asked the the security. I think they were police. We asked them about it too. Um, and immediately they demand to see our passports. And they kind of pull us aside, um, pull us kind of into a security area, and they tell us to come inside, and they're like, kind of like questioning our passports a little bit, and they're looking at them and inspecting them, and uh, our passports were issued in New York City, and then he just like turns to us and smiles and says, New York City, USA, <laughs> and he just wanted to like practice saying that, oh, which is why he pulled us aside and like didn't answer a question at all, but he was all about just like, cool these people are from new york you know it was just like like we're trying to catch this bus man. <laughs> uh so anyway he, he directs us over and he's like he's like right here he takes us over around the corner in front of the terminal and there's this minivan just a typical minivan like six seat um no signs the on dodge it. caravan uh might have been i feel like it was a t- toyota i don't know <laughs> probably a honda odyssey but it was might have been an odyssey <laughs> Maybe. So he tells us to get in this. He's like, this is bus to Lijiang. And we're like, okay, this is like an unmarked van. There's no indication that this is a bus or a taxi. It's just a dude in a van. And it doesn't make any sense. We're just like, should we get in this thing? Um, there's also six people that are also about to get in, too. So you either go or you don't right now. Yeah. They're going yeah. to take your and seat. This was, and this is the kind of situation where you have to, like, trust it. And Greg's done this stuff enough where he's just like, we just have to get in. I'm so ready. What Did Greg have another Greg quote before you got on? No, I don't think so. I guess he we just got to trust does, this lady. <laughs> you know, he is kind of known for these things. I'll tell you a different story later. It's a classic Greg quote. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so he's like, well, we're just going to have to get in and trust it. You know, <laughs> something something to that extent. Um so we keep asking her, like, you know, Lee Jung. It's like, yeah, yeah, do I, do I, Lee Jung, Lee Jung. And uh, we get in this thing, and we're thinking, like, we're packed in with, like, six people. The middle seats, we're in the back, and there's a, some Chinese guy in the middle seat with us. And uh, it starts going, and we're just thinking, like, you know, maybe it's a shuttle to a different train station. Because that's another thing that happens a lot in China, is you'll get on a bus and it just takes you to a different, newer train station where you get a different bus. Like, this is what I mean by it's, like, complicated. Yeah. Like, 
it, it could that theoretically could have just taken us down the street and dropped us off on a street corner without any explanation. And we were supposed to understand, you know, maybe we, we were to understand that we're supposed to go to that train station. Like that's, that's just how these things work. Um, well, it's, it doesn't, it gets on the highway. Um, and immediately we're on the road and we're just kind of in disbelief. We're like, are we really going to be crammed in three people in the back seat for nine hours <laughs> on this thing? And, um, you know, an hour or two goes by and we're like, yep, I think we're, this is it. I think this is the bus to Lijiang. Um, whatever, I guess you just got to go with it. Um, and we are going and we're going and we're going through the countryside to get out of the city. We're in some really like beautiful remote parts of, uh, Yunnan province. Um, actually pretty close to the border of Myanmar, um, or Myanmar. I don't know how you pronounce that one. I think it's Burma again. Is it Burma again? <laughs> uh, so at one point, a couple of hours in, we stop on the side of the road and the van just stops on the side of the road with no explanation. Um, and we're kind of just waiting there or, you know, just like, what's this about? Did they run out of gas? <laughs> Is the driver going out to take a piss? Um, what? You know, he said something really fast, so we have no idea what he said. And we wait like 10 minutes or so, and this other vehicle pulls up, and I kind of look through the back window. The back of this van is stuffed with luggage, so there was barely anywhere I could see out it. Just a little crack through the back window. Um, and I see a couple of guys pull something out of the back of a truck, and they're holding it, um, and it looks like a body. Like, I see fleshy arms that the one guy is holding onto. It looks like a body that's been wrapped in like a a clear trash bag or something. And I see him coming for the van. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like, well, what, what are they picking up? Um, they open up the, the, the trunk. They rip out all the, all the luggage. They just, you know, slam it into each other to make some room. And they force this thing up into the back seat. And I look behind me, and there's two pig hoofs sticking oh, no. right next to my head, basically touching my ear, like gracing my ear <laughs> from the back seat. And it's a dead pig. It's a freshly slaughtered um, dead pig that I'm guessing they're transporting to Lijiang. Um, they do this kind of thing all the time in China. You get on a bus, and it's not in, in Asia, actually. You get on a bus or a taxi, they might make a random stop and pick up a package uh, to be delivered not necessarily for a friend or a family, but they'll just, that's like the way like logistics work with a lot of like shipping and stuff is they'll just like find somebody who's going that direction, pull them over and just throw it on their vehicle. Yeah. Uh, and in this case it was a pig. So we have this dead pig right behind us, like, you know, hunched over the, the back thing. seat with his hooves, the whole, th it was a giant pig too. How, how big, like 600 pounds? No, no, no. I, it, I don't mean giant pig. It was a big pig. It was probably like a, you know, no. 100 pounder, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Decent size, you know, definitely weighed, weighed the van down a little yeah. bit. <laughs> a little bit of juices were coming out on our luggage, too. We oh, God. <laughs> and we just couldn't believe it. Like, Greg and I were just like, what the fuck? Like, this guy picked up a pig. Like, we've got, we're riding, <laughs> we're riding now in this like strange van car experience, and we just picked up a pig. Uh, you know, what is, this is yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is, this is awesome. <laughs> Um, so, you know, it, we, we do the whole, the whole trip and everything and make it out to Lijiang and explain to the driver, yes, that's where we want to be dropped off. And Greg explains to him that we want to be dropped off at this certain hostel. And the guy's like, oh yeah, yeah, I know where that is. I know where that is. 
And he drops us off at the end of this street, and we're just like, this this isn't it. Like, this is nowhere near it. And Greg's arguing with the guy. He's like, oh, yeah, no, no, you go up the hill. It's, it's up there. You go up the hill. It's up there. And we're just like, all right. Like, we're pretty sure it's not here, but we're just going to, if if it's not, we'll just take a cab. I mean, you can you can just flag a cab down in China, and it costs nothing. So it's, like, not a big deal. Um, so we kind of walk into the street, walk up this hill. Um, there's a schoolyard up there, um, a bunch of kids playing out in the playground. Um, they all come over to the fence. They're, like, staring at us walking by, you know, with their bags and everything. And uh, we don't know where we are. We're completely lost. Our phones are dead. Um, and we have to figure out where this hostel is. So... We ended up going down to the, the front school gates where school's letting out, and Greg asked these guys, there's all these old men smoking cigarettes waiting to pick up their kids. You know, they're like they're like gambling and stuff too, like like hanging out under the gates of the school, gambling, smoking cigarettes, waiting for their kids to, to pick up. And Greg asked them, and they're just like immediately shocked that this foreigner is speaking Chinese to them, which is always like, it's always so funny to see how they react to that. Um, and then they just think it's so funny that we're there and they think it's so funny and they want their, they want like their pictures with us <laughs> and everything. Um, you know, it's kind of a typical, like, you know, run in a foreigner story there. Um, but eventually, yeah, we got some directions from them, um, got a cab and finally made it to this hostel where we made it, you know, that, that was the day of travel. And there were just so many things that went wrong that were stressful and that you, we kind of just had to accept and know that we're going to make it at some point by some means. There's going to be pig juices on us. There was some pig juice on our <laughs> but bags. we're going there, to make it. Our hands were not clean, for sure. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was just the trip out there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, and I think that really is just kind of just how difficult it can be. If I were there by myself doing this, <laughs> I would have probably never made it as far as outside of the bus terminal to figure this yeah. out. And I would have figured it out, you know? I would have talked to the right person, or maybe I would have found an alternative way to get out there. Like, you can always find a way. It's just, like, it can be really stressful um, if you make the wrong decisions. Um, yeah, so we went out there for a little bit, and, yeah, it was that was just the beginning of the adventure, I'd say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah what I always say is the adventure doesn't start until the plan fails. And it sounds <laughs> yeah. like China's a good place to go for if you want your plan yeah. to fail. <laughs> uh, and, and that's why I love it. <laughs> that's why, uh, you know, like after after I was in China for three weeks, um, traveling around, we ended up doing some hiking out there, whatever, and uh, flew out to Vietnam and spent a month in Vietnam. I found it so boring. Like, I had a great time in Vietnam, but the difficulty and like the traveling aspect of it was like really boring. You didn't have a lot of those like just really fucked up like <laughs> plans failing experiences um there were enough foreigners around and enough people that spoke english um that it was, was easier easy. it was a lot easier i mean you also have like a well-established bus system a well-established like um route for tourism gringo like, trail yeah there's definitely that we we rode the gringo trail and uh that I, I would probably consider that like a regrettable experience with vietnam um just because i don't know we we didn't really know that that's what it was like there. When you travel, are you picking a place or picking someone to go visit or meet? Or do you go places with an intention, like something to learn? Or so, or I guess it, maybe it's a mix. Yeah, it's, 
Yeah, it, it could be a number of those things. Um, it does help having a connection. Um, you know, one of the reasons I love going back to China is because my good friend is there. But, I mean, there's so many other things. I think that's why it's really, like, the ultimate um, travel destination for me at the moment because it fulfills everything. There's a good friend that I know there um, who's a huge connection, obviously. Um, and there's just so many amazing things to see and experience. Um, it's a huge and diverse country with just like so, so much to learn about. Um, you know, it's really like the destination aspect of it is, is huge for me. Um, but I do like the idea of kind of like picking somewhere, you know, nothing about and going there. Um, I've done that a couple of times and that's always a blast. You learn way more about the place than you'd ever think there was to know about it. Um, that was kind of my case with uh, traveling around uh, Bali um, in Indonesia. It was just, I I went there before, that was before I was in China. And I went there sh- purely because it was a cheap plane ticket from Australia. That was the only reason I went there. How much um, was it? I was like 200 bucks. That's nice. For a one, one-way trip from Brisbane was like 200 bucks. It was also when the volcano was erupting. So like they, <laughs> they were a little more discounted, I think. <laughs> Um, but, you know, that was a kind of the decision to go there was purely uh, just like it was cheap. It was close. And I had a month to kill before I met with met with my buddy in China. Um, so, you know, it's it's a number of reasons, I think. Um, if I know if I had a friend that moved to some foreign country, I would do everything I could to go out there and visit. Um, it's awesome to have that connection and to have somebody that's already done the whole like orientation aspect they've of gotten it. lost enough that now they know yeah. where to go uh, a big part of landing in a place you don't know like i would say for me the first if i landed in a city that i knew nothing about it would probably take me about a week to become like familiar and comfortable enough with that place to really start understanding it um for me like there's a there's a certain level of um overwhelmingness when you get somewhere new uh, and when you have somebody who lives there, like, they already can explain everything to you. Um, it's a lot harder to figure out a place when you don't know anyone, you know nothing about it, than when somebody who lives there can explain, like, oh, this is how the bus system works. You don't have to spend a day figuring it yeah. out. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a nice shortcut. So, um, you know, I, I'll take any reason to travel, really, to, to answer your question. It can be any reason, practical, <laughs> impractical, or simply just a dream. Yeah. <laughs> so when I... When I think about travel lately, I've been more into the idea of going with a, a something that I want to take away from it. Like, if I go to Italy, I want to learn how to make pasta. Or if I go to, you know, somewhere else, I want to learn or do something I can only do there. And the rest of it fills in around that, but I've been trying to have more of that intention to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think traveling with intention is, like, really important um, because otherwise you can waste a lot of time. Yeah, Um, That's kind of what I found going to Bali um, is I had no intention. (laughs) And uh, I didn't know what was there. I didn't know what I wanted to do there. Um, I I had, like, really nothing. I landed there, and I had a month. Well, actually, I don't think I I even had a return flight. I think I just landed there indefinitely. And I was like... I don't know anything about Bali or what I want to do here. I just know that there's a lot of stupid tourists here, and I <laughs> was would never be interested to go to a place like this. Um, I guess, like, for me going there, one of the intentions 
The only thing I really knew about Bali is that a lot of Australians and tourists go there. And that there was a um, volcano going off. And there was a volcano going off, yeah. Um, so it never really appealed to me because I'm like, it's, to me it just sounded like a, a vacation getaway where foreigners can like exploit the local people for, for tourism. That's kind of all how I always saw it. And I definitely saw that aspect of it like right away upon landing there. Um, so I think my intention going there, whether I knew it or not at the time, was to kind of find like the side of it that wasn't that, um, which I think can be cliche because I think a lot of people are like, oh, you know, let's get off the beaten path and get all away from this. But I just wanted to see, I just wanted to go places where there weren't tourists, like um, where there were like no tourists, not like the places where it's like, you got to go here. You know, no one's here. Yeah, no one I wanted to it, show yeah. up in a town. Um, I wanted to go to like a homestay or a town or an area or a beach where there is not a tourism marketed restaurant, hotel, or industry. Um, that was kind of my intention, I guess. And I think part of that um, with Indonesia was simply the fact that I knew nothing about it. Um, like you said, going, you know, going somewhere like Italy and you know, wanting to learn pasta or bread, I think if I knew enough about a place, I'd have more like, bigger goals like that. Um, but I do like the style of like traveling and having no expectations or intentions. Like, there's an allure to that. Um, it's just a little impractical, a little inefficient, and it requires a lot of time and probably a little more money, um, less planning to really to really make the most of it. But and I'm yeah. sure when you found those places you were looking for, it was worth even a little inefficiency or whatever else. Yeah, it was. It was, especially when it's a place that you underestimated. Um, if it's a place that you had a certain idea about or a certain reputation with, um, you know, and you're able to get a completely different narrative and a completely different understanding for that place, like that is worth it to me. Um, you know, now I can, I can talk about Bali, um, from a pretty different perspective than most people who would vacation there would have. Um, you know, I've got friends on like Facebook who like hit me up every week and ask me how I'm doing there. It's like, um, it, you know, I feel like I really started to understand um, how the local culture interacts with the tourism culture, um, and that's really like something I was like looking to learn. Um, I guess maybe, yeah, to learn. I, I suppose you wanted to see the real Bali. Yeah, I guess it's just like I I hate to say that because it's so cliche. Like, there's so many people who just want to go there and like do the eat pray love thing and like you know experience the religion and the spiritual side of it and it's just like so disgustingly cliche um now i'm being pretty cynical about it because there is a lot of like really cool positive stuff about that but a lot of companies probably know there's people going there for oh yeah absolutely so they can do the faux whatever it's it's a bit fake it is a bit fake but um I think there is like some some truth to it in some ways, and I think the way in which some of the locals embrace the foreigners and uh, there there is there is legitimacy to the friendliness of the people uh, to foreigners. It's not just because they want to sell you a tour or sell you you know something. There is a, I learned that there is a legitimate friendliness and curiosity about people traveling there, um, which is like which is more than I really thought. I thought it was a lot of just like. You know, I met all these people who have been in Bali, and they're like, oh, I made so many friends there, and, you know, this guy, you know, I'm friends with him, and, uh, you know, that he told me about his life, and he invited me to dinner with his family, and I was, I'd always kind of think in the back of my mind, it's like, all right, well, you know, what did he try to sell you? 
Um, but there is actually, I learned there is, there is legitimacy to it. Um, and, you know, it, it did help me understand their culture um, and how their culture contrasts from the rest of Indonesia because Bali is, like, completely different than the rest of Indonesia. So, yeah, I, I learned a bit from that. But Plus you got some great pictures. Yeah, that was another, there was a lot of eye-opening things there, um, especially with, like, pollution and stuff there. Um, yeah, that was, that was shocking. Um, I've seen some polluted landscapes in China, but, um, you know, the most shocking thing I've ever seen was walking my first night in Bali. Um, I was staying in Karabokan, which is just south of Changu and, you know, north of Kuta, where the big party area is. So it's kind of like an in-between area. It used to be a little more upscale. Um, so I picked this area because it was known to have nicer beaches from everything I read about it. Um, it, it seemed like a good place to land where I might be able to meet people. And I was excited. I, I just came from Australia, and I was really excited to see what these Balinese beaches were all about. People in Australia rave about going to Bali for the beaches. And Australia's beaches are, like, phenomenal. Uh, I mean, they're, like, world class. Like, I can't even begin to talk about that. Um, so, you know, I was expecting just, like, this this amazing, like, you know, perfect beach in Bali that's, like, on your calendars and, you know, it's the stuff that, uh, you know, shows up in, like, stock photos and everything. Um, and I come up on a sunset in Karabakan. Um, I, w- I walk down to the beach, and it's a little hill that I have to w- walk over. And I walk over the top of the hill, and I look down on the beach, and it's just trash. It looks like a landfill. There's more trash than there is sand on the beach. Um, it is absolutely shocking. And you can see down in the water, and you can see just heaps of trash, like, rolling with the waves. Um, it, it was, like, it was so shocking to walk upon that beach and have every expectation completely shattered by the reality of an, a, a densely populated developing country. Um, it was just, like... I, it was, it was, I, my jaw dropped. I've never felt my jaw physically drop before, but my mouth stood agape, um, looking down at these beaches. And not only was there trash, but there were people picking through the trash, looking for stuff that was better materials. There were stray dogs running around everywhere. Um, there were people burning piles of trash, sitting around them like a campfire, um, and then there were bars full of Western tourists sipping out of $8 coconut drinks sitting on that same beach. And that was just, that was weird. That was, that really put me off. That made me say, I need to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah. Did that seem more like an alternate dimension or that you traveled into the future? It felt... It felt like an alternate dimension. I, I didn't know something like that would exist there. I know places like that exist. Um, you know, I've seen tons of images of beaches in India, in Indonesia, and China that are, you know, nothing but garbage. Um, I, I've definitely seen, like, some of those, like, otherworldly kind of landscapes of just, like, you know, insane pollution. I just did not expect to see that there. Um, for a place that has such a reputation, um, I felt like I was in the wrong place. I felt like I somehow stepped into, yeah, like a, a another a parallel universe or another dimension. Um, yeah, it was it was shocking. It was extremely shocking. 
and I photographed and got some cool shots. Yeah. So that was awesome uh, photograph. I yeah. Just, so I, I felt for once the only way I could like digest this, I think, was was to get some photographs of it um, and share that with some people. And I, you know, not to like push the agenda of environmentalism. I I don't want to make it like that. I want to see it as more of a documentarian approach. Um, and you know, the, the image I put up of that, I, I talked about, um, you know, the, where that trash comes from, when it shows up, why it's a problem. I didn't talk about like, you know, everybody needs to stop using plastic straws now. Cause it's like, it's the problem I think first needs to be understood before you can like forcibly call to action people. Um, and to understand that problem there, you have to understand that Indonesia has a huge problem with garbage collection they have a huge problem with plastic consumption i mean it's it's way deeper than just like you know us as westerners stop using straws like it's an understanding of of the the local position to how it got that way i think um which is maybe just my more objective like documentarian approach i want to put on it but um which is i think where a lot of worldwide problems boil down to it's we need better education about everything. Yeah, perhaps. Um, yeah, and I think just like traveling and, and seeing that firsthand is huge. Now, that's not a problem that's caused by us. Um, that's not a problem. That if your trash doesn't make it in the trash can here in the United States, yes, it is going to go out to the ocean and likely end up in you know one of the big like uh, the garbage gyros that are around the world. But the continent size that problem in Indonesia isn't caused by us, but I think it's important to understand that, like, how important it is to, like, consider our consumption and consider plastic waste, because this is the extreme of it. Like, this is a country, a developing country, that does not have the education to understand that this is happening. Um, They don't have, they don't really understand the connection between putting their garbage in the streams and these, like, beach, you know, uh, wash-ups like this. yeah, I think it's. I think it really like says something about, um, you know, just just understanding your impact. I suppose, um, you know, maybe your impact isn't gonna cause that in Indonesia, but your impact of consumption does have some kind of impact. Um, but you know, sometimes those shock images really help <laughs> make that point. But. So, in another alternate dimension from that one and the one we live in, there is a Tim Kistner that woke up and decided he wasn't going to Colorado. And a year went by working at that center. What would you tell him if you got a call from him saying, hey, you've been up to some awesome stuff. I want to do that type of stuff. What would you tell him to skip a lot of the initial pains and get into the seasonal lifestyle? that you have obviously reaped so many rewards from. Yeah, that's that's a really uh, funny way to put it. Uh, I think it would have inevitably happened with me. You know, I think I've always had that thirst for travel um, because even before I made the leap towards seasonal work, um, I did the whole thing in Europe. Uh, are we talking about Tim Kissner that never did the Europe thing too? Uh, no, he did. I just mean, okay. so what would you tell someone that um, is doing normal job similar and they're not happy with it and they see what you're doing and they, they've gone from, cause so many people say, Oh, I wish I could do that. I'm so jealous. And the easy answer is you can, if I can do it, you can do it. But 
if they were if they've gotten past that and said, I want to do it, Tim, what do I need to do? Where do I to get to that point? Yeah. Or to get on a path like yours. Yeah, I, I would really just encourage people to like consider the possibilities. Um, you know, consider that you can essentially go anywhere that you want. Um, if you have the privilege, obviously, if you have the means and the money and like the ability, um, you can really kind of just go anywhere you want, even if it's just to, to experience something. Um, I would always recommend for people to try out the work away thing. I would always recommend going on one of those websites, think about that country you've always wanted to go to and look at some of the captions and headlines for work availability. Um, I mean, I think those those experiences are really important for, for breaking out of a place. Um, and for someone like me, before I broke out and started doing seasonal work, um, I did the Europe thing. But I think if I did another work away, I would have really gotten it and really said, like, okay, I can live in a different place another way. Um, it's not necessarily like a, 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 a call for seasonal work, but it's a call for going somewhere else, a call for dropping everything and trying a different job, trying a different path. Um, aside from that, you know, I, I think it's important to make people aware of some of the resources that there are out there for getting involved in seasonal work um, and the fact that it can be a profession. I think what scares a lot of people away from making those leaps is the fact that it's perceived as a as not a professional way to live or not a career. Um, I think people really like the idea of a career-driven lifestyle and a longer-term career at something. And I totally get that, and I totally respect that. Sometimes I wish I you know, found a concise career where I could do a similar thing that I'm doing. Um, but you know, like taking that leap and knowing that if you go somewhere that you really like and you meet the right people and you're open-minded enough, you can find an opportunity to plant yourself and to make yourself a professional in something that you really love doing. Whether it be tour guiding like I'm doing now or whether you go to some town and you work at a restaurant and you find out that you want to own a business. Um, you know, there's just so many possibilities. There's no, like, clear-cut career. And I think filling yourself with experiences um, can really help you understand that you can kind of just do whatever you want and you can make a living doing whatever, whatever you want. And a good living. And a good living, yeah, at that. So when you say having the means, I think a lot of people have the idea that traveling is expensive, super expensive. And the way that most people travel can be, you know, staying at hotels going even going to Myrtle Beach or wherever and then they Beach. think oh yeah it's awful <laughs> I heard that one in a while. <laughs> but if they think okay if going just to the beach costs that much then going to Europe costs an insane amount even more yeah, yeah. but my round trip ticket to Europe was $500 yeah. my round trip ticket to Colombia was like $320 what are what are some of the prices you've paid and what's uh some information you have on the financial viability of traveling and how inexpensive it can be. I think the big thing, which I've tried to explain to, to some people who I've wanted to encourage to travel, is that you have to you have to know. Um, hang on, let me backtrack. Um, let me try. How do I put this? 
I think the thing that I try to explain to people with cost is this isn't a vacation where you're staying in a hotel and you're living your life the same way. It can be done that way, but that's when it gets expensive. If you're flying to Paris and you're finding like an expensive hotel or an Airbnb or something like that, and you're going to see the sights of the city, that's going to cost a lot of money. Take bringing the way that you live your life as luggage and getting that same way of living in another country is what costs a shitload. That's exactly it. If you're that's, just that's bringing exactly yourself it. and not yeah. your way of living and not your comfort zone, it can be very inexpensive. Yeah, I mean, I think if you want to live the same way that, that you're, like you just said, if you're living to a certain standard right now, and if you're living in the United States, it's probably pretty high standard of living um, comparably to, you know, the other parts of the world, um, you have to be willing to kind of sacrifice a lot of things. Um, you know, you don't need 10 changes of clothes if you're traveling somewhere and lots of luggage to carry around. Um, I think really like knocking down your comforts and like going outside of your comfort zone a bit is one of the biggest ways to cut costs. Um, you know, there's just like all these, you know, do you really need to bring a couple different types of shampoo and a big bottle of shampoo, or can you just, like, rinse your hair with some water and use, like, you know, a little bottle of shampoo you buy abroad? There's lots of little things like that, and it's really kind of like like giving up um, the lifestyle you had temporarily um, to just, like, fit yourself into some place as easily and compact as possible. Um, so, you know, I always, I always say, like, finding, finding uh, you know, like, home shares, Workaways, like, that's free. Uh, you buy the plane ticket. When I went to Europe, uh, when I went to Germany the first year, um, I bought my plane ticket. I bought, like, a round trip for, like, I don't know, I think it was, like, $700. It was pretty cheap. Um, and the entire month that I was in Germany, I spent less than $200. $200 in a month. I didn't have to pay rent. I worked on this and you farm. were spraying and shearing alpacas. You got a whole farm to yourself for a week. I got three <laughs> meals a day. Um, they bought us beer. Um, I had a room. So I lived for an entire month in Germany, like eating like a king, having these like am- amazing experiences. And essentially, the only time I spent money was when I went to town and went out to the bar or, you know, got something to eat in town. Um, that was one really great way to, uh, to really save some money. Um, so I think also like sacri- when it comes to sacrificing those comforts too, with flights, that's another thing. Um, you know, I've been on some really shitty flights that were cheap, and they're they're shitty because they're cheap. So, <laughs> right, I'm willing to sacrifice comfort for an eight hour flight somewhere um, if it saves me five hundred bucks. Um, I'm willing to sleep in an airport overnight if it saves me a thousand dollars. It's really like you really have to kind of stop and drop your comforts. I think. I think that's my number one piece of advice for that is just bring less than you need. <laughs> um, and, you know, maybe maybe find a good resource for, like, packing light. Um, you know, when I travel, I just have a big backpack on my back. I've got three pairs of underwear, three T-shirts, one pair of pants, one pair of shorts, and the rest of it's just, like, you know, some of my camera gear and stuff. Um, and it's like I, I nobody notices when you wear the same clothes every day. Like, well, maybe some people do, but... 
<laughs> if you're abroad, they definitely don't. If you're abroad and because you're not going to see an, a person more than once. That's the last thing anyone once. gives a fuck about. And like, who cares? Like, what would you rather do? Like, spend a week somewhere, spend a week longer somewhere really awesome, or have to carry around a bunch of crap and you know live like you're living at home. Um, you know, it's it's. I think it's uh, I think it's really important sometimes that you you step back and you think about. Um, what daily comforts do you have that you just don't need? Could you, if you were, actually, I think this is a good way to think about it. If you were to live in the same town where you're living right now and you had, you got, you had to leave your house and all you could bring with you was a tent and a backpack full of items, what items would you bring? Where would you go and how long would you last? Not a big backpack. And I'm not talking like a big one, like, you know, like a, if you were homeless, think about, I kind of, you know, when I travel, it, it is really like you're homeless. You, you kind of have everything on your back. Um, you're a hobo. Yeah, you are, you are, you are a ho- homeless person. Um, but, you know, when you step away from your house full of stuff, it's like you realize pretty quickly that you don't need a lot of that stuff. Now, there's nice comforts and it's nice to have things, of course. Um, but if you really want to make that sacrifice and travel somewhere for an extended period of time, um, it's really important to think how would you how would you live if you were homeless? What belongings would you have on you if all you could do is live out of a backpack for a time? Um, yeah, it's I think it's important to analyze. For me, it came down to as as it usually does, is this an external thing or an internal thing? And so I cut down stuff. I cut it down, I cut it down, I cut it down. And I got to the point where it's like I need next to nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm having the time of my life. Yeah. And I think when you tell people that, and when, especially when I'm talking to friends and they're like, how much do you travel with? I'm like, everything I own, not just that I travel with, everything that I own fits in a rolling luggage and, or in this backpack. And they, they're immediately, they think, oh, I couldn't do that. I, you know, I need this, that, that, that. And though it's these products, the people that make these products are so good at marketing. I don't, I, Nobody understands how powerful marketing is. They like you need this. Yeah, you have yeah. to have this. They're inventing problems that are only solved by their product, and then so you think, oh, I need this, and it, no, you don't. You don't need anything. You need absolutely nothing. And so when I travel, it, I learned that very slowly. But now I'm to the point, and I'm sure I can cut even more. But I'm to the point where it's very close to nothing and i'm so happy about it and i never want to go back yeah it's a great feeling like the, i the when I, the first time i came to ketchikan i brought so many clothes button-ups nice shoes all you know everything i have now which is normal whatever but then also these other like what if i go out one night what if i have to dress yeah, up one yeah, night what that's if, when it gets that is when you bring so much stuff. I brought so much stuff. And looking back on it, I'm like, oh, you poor, poor person. <laughs> poor Joey. And so I, I don't want to be elitist. I'm just I'm trying to, like, you don't need that stuff. And you're exactly right. Yeah. I, I think about it like this. Um, this was a kind of a funny, like, realization I had. Uh, when I came back to Ketchikan this year, I, I worked at the thrift store in town here, which is a sweet job. Um, but needless to say, you're surrounded by junk. You have junk. so many awesome jobs. Um, <laughs> you're, you're surrounded by junk in this thrift store, and you can basically get anything you want. And I you know, I, I came back from my travels, and same thing, just like out of a backpack, 
And uh, all of a sudden, I can, like, I see all this stuff at the thrift store that I could get really cheap. And it's, like, and everybody, there's people that come into that store three times a day, and they buy a shopping cart three times a day. I don't know what the hell they're doing with all this stuff, but it's, like... (laughs) They're going to start a new thrift store. But anyway, one thing I noticed about the thrift store was the crazy amount of unnecessary kitchen gadgets. There are particular tools for cutting mangoes, particular tools for cutting an avocado, a particular tool for washing lettuce, like all these like just unnecessary, um, like just items, right? Like kitchen gadgets, like junk. Those lettuce washers are awesome. They are cool. No, I do like them, but I don't have, I can just (laughs) like rent, run some water over the lettuce and like shake it a little bit like is it really going to change my life um and and it's like i so i think about this and i think it's so funny how uh companies try to market things like kitchen gadgets in particular where it's like you need this special mango knife and all it is is a plastic knife that's like a little short it's like you need this and it's twenty dollars um and you know people buy this shit like why would you ever buy that it's all you need is a knife so think about it this way it's like in a kitchen like, what do you really need? What do you need, really need to prepare food? You need a knife to cut food. I mean, you don't really need a cutting board. You don't really need... A I cut a tomato in my hand today. <laughs> and put it in my egg. You know, you, you don't I really need, like... I cut it in like, force, but didn't go completely through it at the bottom, and then just pulled it apart over the pan and dropped it in. I love, I love <laughs> it. That's, that's what I'm talking about. For my avocados, I use a butter knife um, around in a circle, and then I twist it apart. I eat with the spoon, the one side without the pit, and then the other with the side with the pit. Instead of, like, pulling it out with the knife or whatever, I just eat around it, and then at some point, it's just the pit comes out. <laughs> that's that's how I do my mornings, ladies and gentlemen. It. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you really don't need much. I mean, it's like you don't need a tea kettle. You just use the pan that you use for everything else you cook, put some water in there. I mean, really, that's what I mean by, like, minimalism. Now it is nice to have those things. If you do have a kitchen, I'm not dissing people who have kettles and have mango knives. Um, Because some of them are nice. But I'm saying... The mango knife I don't get. You could cook a perfectly incredible meal with just a small little box of very basic kitchen items. Um, you don't need a bread maker. You just need a pan. Um, you can probably get away without using a pan for bread. I don't know. Um, you know, there's just like all these like unnecessary little pieces of baggage. I think that we consider necessary for to, to own that wash up on a Balinese beach. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't going there, but <laughs> yeah, or end up in the thrift store. There you go. Um, but if I mean, you know, if your life is the Balinese beach all this crap is washing up on it that you don't need is like, I think Mm -hmm. what we're trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's gets in your way. I mean, it's like, you know, how hard is it? You start having stray dogs running around. Yeah. If you've got a kitchen full of bunch of, (laughs) and then you've got foreigners drinking $8 pina coladas off of a bar. I couldn't believe that man. Like I went to one of the like nicer places in Bali. Like, cause I, I wanted to see what it was all about. Like I went to one of the nice, like beach side, beach side, like cocktail bars with like a pool and everything. Cause I'm like, I'm just going to see like what it's like to be a tourist here. Like, you know, I'm just going to get a couple of nice drinks tonight. And I bought a drink that was $25 
And that's American USD. And in Bali, like that's what I paid to rent a motorcycle for a month. $25 is like the average, like uh, a couple of people I talked to said a good wage. If you're a Balinese person is about a hundred dollars a month. Like I just bought a drink for like a week's, a week's pay. That's like buying a drink here for, I don't know, 500 to a thousand dollars for, you know, whatever my income range is at the moment. It's like, that's, that's crazy to spend that much money on something. And you know, that money does not go to the locals. It goes to the big companies that like, there's actually a lot of monopolies in Indonesia. That money doesn't stay on the Island. It goes to the big monopolies that have bars in every single city, um, every single town around Bali. Um, and it's just like, wow, like that's, that's really fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe that. I bought one drink and I didn't expect, I said maybe 10 bucks, but it's like $25 for like a shitty, like it was just like a rum drink and a coconut. Like it wasn't even anything fancy. To me, being a bartender, there's no combination of liquids that is worth <laughs> more than $7. I don't know. You, you can really speak for that one. I, I just, I'd probably it's, say three dollars for me is my right. Is my yeah, uh, I mean, I can get point. something to taste really good for seven dollars or less, and it's not. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is just me. But <laughs> okay. all right, before before we go down this route, Joey's gonna get depressed. But so this summer you're in Ketchikan. It's awesome to have you for the whole summer, and what. What is one of your goals this summer? We're going to talk about the Mountaintop EDM Festival. Right. But other than that, yeah, DJ Dub Trub will be there. Shout out to Trub. This is Dub. What's a goal you have this summer for Ketchikan? Ooh. There's a couple. Um, I've been thinking, I'm planning to spend the winter here. So Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I will travel a bit this winter, but I do intend to base... Ketchikan's now my home base. I've kind of decided um, this winter. God, all of you are staying yeah, in the winter. It. It's it's good in the winter. So part of my you know part of my <laughs> I summer. Do is, not, I know if you guys start working on me, it might. Uh, I don't, I don't everyone's say here. It's it. like the seasonal year round, <laughs> which I guess is no longer the seasonal. But when all the seasonal people live in one place, we're gonna place, have to change the name. It's like a utopia, man. Like having all the seasonal people here year round. Uh, yeah, so you know, part of one of part of my summer, I think here, um, kind of a side note, I guess, is setting myself up for the winter. Um, there's a lot of projects I want to get going in the winter. Um, I want to make an ambient music radio station. Um, one of our local radio stations, actually, I contacted them, and I proposed um, a late night ambient music hour, which has always been like my dream. Oh yeah, uh, going going back to my hometown. There was a there's a late night ambient music hour. There's two of them actually on the radio, and it's it's been something that's inspired me so much. I've always wanted to do it. So I contacted the radio station here, and I asked them, and they're like, "Yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Um, you just didn't tell us what day and time you want to do it." So <laughs> it's like okay, that's it. I thought it'd be like a little harder to get it going in this, but I really just have to like given the time. So I want to start um, preparing for something like that. That's that's going to be a big project, along with producing some music for that show. I want to really start making some of my own music. Um, so, you know, just setting yourself up for the winter here is really important. 
as far as what I want to do this summer, um, a lot more fishing. That's the that's probably the number one thing. Um, I got my Alaskan ID, and I'm now an Alaska State resident. So now I can get a cheap fishing license, um, and I really want to get out there and just start fishing a lot. Um, get out in boats, fish from the sidelines, just learn as much as I can, um, and be able to stock up my fridge for the winter. That's big goal of mine. Um, I'd also really like to explore a couple of areas around here, um, including this abandoned gold mine that's on the Cleveland Peninsula. My interest, you have it. <laughs> uh, Helm Bay. Uh, allegedly, there's an abandoned town there with all of the buildings um, and an old mining claim. So my buddy went there a few years ago and he even found like old gold pans and he went gold panning in the creeks there. So I'd like to I think that's going to be one of the big adventures for me this winter or this summer. Um, going I was going to say, wait, I have to wait till the winter <laughs> for this? Yeah, that's that's a big one. Um, yeah, I'd probably say just getting out in the boat more and exploring some of the surrounding area, I think, is, is generally what I want to do. Um, of course, our, our mountaintop party is high up there. Yeah, tell, all right, tell us about that. Oh, yeah, I proposed this before to Joey. Um, and I want to have a mountaintop rave party and I'm talking like bring a generator out there, get a decent sound system, a couple of turntables, two turntables and a microphone, um, you know, and set this thing up, put out the invite like the day of, put the invite out there, but drop the location like the day of and see who can come out to it and just throw this impromptu, like crazy all night long, um, dance party up on a mountain or in the forest somewhere. Um, something heavily inspired by my bush parties in Australia that I participated in. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm talking like, um, you know, I guess who, I don't know who would be interested to DJ it, but I... I think we got plenty of people that would be interested in yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to spin some Psytrance. That's going to be my kind of thing. Maybe some maybe some deep house early in the night to get the floor moving, but I want to have like a late night intense... Psytrance session going on. Um, just like the kind of thing that goes on in Australia and the bush parties. Like I oh, want to yeah. really take that atmosphere up to the mountains here. It's going to be awesome. Let's, let's do it. We're doing it. <laughs> well, Tim, thank you for coming in. It's always it's amazing. It's been a pleasure. To you. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's great to be here, Joey. It's great. It's a, it's an honor to be, um, interviewed by none other. <laughs> All right, Joey that's Rubinsky enough. Of the seasonal, the starter of the seasonal. Yeah, that's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Dininger, me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by Ryan Dininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out. Yeah.